Today I'm joined by Dr. Edward Hagen. He is a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Washington State University, where he runs the bioanthropology lab and researches, among other things, uh, evolutionary medicine, the evolution of leadership, and the evolution of substance use. Ed, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. So you're the first anthropologist I've had on the show, and I don't know too much about the field of anthropology, and I don't think uh, why well, I, I imagine some of my listeners might not either. So it would be great if you could give uh, just a brief overview of, of what it is anthropologists do, and then we can, we can talk about your research as well. So anthropology is traditionally divided into four subdisciplines. Um, the subdiscipline that most folks are probably familiar with is archaeology. And these are folks that study past human societies and cultures and past human behaviors. And they typically excavate material culture, everything from little scraps of pots um, or- They're like Indiana stone. Jones. <clears throat> They're kind of like the Indiana Jones. Um, and actually a lot of archeologists got into archeology span because they were inspired by um, Indiana Jones. Um, but we have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with him because a lot of it is uh, looting and uh, taking cultural artifacts out of context. So. Um, the scientific practices that we see in the Indiana Jones movies are, are, are pretty poor. Um, nevertheless, um, they, they were, uh, they are kind of inspiring movies in some ways. Um, so that's one subdiscipline. Um, another subdiscipline that many folks might be familiar with is um, biological anthropology. That's what I am. And most of us in my discipline um, are paleoanthropologists. That means that we look at fossils. Um, of um, typically um, human ancestors, or we um, examine burials of, of modern humans, but ancient modern humans or historical modern human populations. So looking at skeletons um, and trying to infer their diet, their disease, their life ways um, from skeletal evidence. Um, another group of biological anthropologists study primates um, because we humans are primates. So they're attempting to kind of understand humans in the broader context of our close relatives like chimpanzees and gorillas and other primates. Um, a third subdiscipline is linguistic anthropology. Um, these folks study different languages, often indigenous languages. Um, again, trying to understand um, the cultural evolution of language. And then the final big subdiscipline is cultural anthropology. Um, and um, those folks um, basically are trying to understand um, cultural diversity around the world. Um, and they will often go and live um, in a particular culture. Um, and really we call this participant observation, um, really trying to understand cultures from the inside. And, and so today, as we kind of watch the, the disaster in Afghanistan, a lot of us anthropologists are shaking our heads because we could have predicted something like this. Um, that society is very, very different from ours. Um, and um, it really, that whole exercise would have benefited from some anthropological perspectives on the Afghan people. Um, and that's what a lot of anthropologists have tried to do over the last literally 200 years is understand um, those kinds of societies, how they are similar and different to ours from the inside, um, kind of seeing the society from the own, uh, those, those folks' own perspective. So those would be the four subdisciplines. Um, 
Um, I'm a little bit odd. Um, there's a group of us that are very interested in human behavior from an evolutionary perspective. So we have a lot in common with cultural anthropologists that are trying to understand uh, human behavioral and cultural diversity. Um, but we're trying to do it from an evolutionary perspective um, using the kinds of theories that primatologists would often use to understand primate behavior and applying them to human behavior. So if we kind of think not just of our physiological and morphological evolution, for example, the evolution of our teeth or the evolution of bipedalism, we're trying to think about how do we understand the evolution of human behavior um, when we think about humans as primates. Um, and there's not too many of us doing that, but there's a few. That's a great overview, thank you. So were you initially drawn to this biological end or were you, were you like an undergrad exploring various disciplines and, and well, yeah, how did, how did you uh, become interested in biological anthropology? Yeah, well, I was actually originally in the, the natural sciences. I'm a, kind of, I'm a physics math major. I worked in chemistry for many years, um, but I realized I was more interested in, in humans than um, non-human things in the natural world. I was more interested in the, the social and human world, um, but I wanted to do that from a scientific perspective and, and really, and a broad um, comparative perspective. How do we think about humans as one animal among many? Um, and I was actually completely um, ignorant of, of most of the anthropology, um, but I, I knew that's kind of what I wanted to do. So I entered into anthropology originally as a cultural anthropologist. Um, I entered in in the early 90s. And at that time, cultural anthropology had been going through um, a crisis um, that really still hasn't recovered from. Um, it had kind of divided into a scientific faction um, that really wanted to continue to study human behavior using scientific methods and principles. But there was another faction that was saying, look, um, indigenous peoples all around the world um, are really being hugely impacted by globalization and colonialism. And um, we can't just kind of dispassionately think about this from a scientific perspective, we gotta get in there and help these folks um, whose cultures are being devastated. Um, so the, the, the field was really grappling with what, what did it want to do? And I knew that I, I really believe that we couldn't really help people if we didn't understand them. So I really wanted to stay on the scientific side. Um, and I was really drawn to the comparative perspective, thinking about humans as one primate among many. And I really thought that could offer us some keen insights. But a lot of cultural anthropology was, was pretty hostile to that approach and still is. Um, so I decided to switch to biological anthropology where um, there are folks that still are very interested in kind of trying to think about human behavior. Um, from an evolutionary scientific perspective. So outside of the biological aspect, how does cultural anthropology differ from, uh, let's say, how historians look at, look at the evolution of culture? Yeah, so horse, historians typically re rely on historical records. This requires written records. So they're, they're very much focused on um, societies that have written historical records that they can look at, be they economic records or what have you. So there is a lot of overlap. In fact, anthropology, cultural anthropologists um, in, in the early 90s and still today were, were actually being heavily influenced by historical approaches. So there is quite a bit of overlap, but many, many anthropologists work with non-literate folks 
Um, and unlike you know, uh, historians will often embed themselves um, and live in these societies for months and years, um, collecting data at the individual level from living people, from our informants. Um, so the methodologies are different. Um, the types of populations typically are different. Um, but there is, there is a fair amount of overlap and, and back and forth between um, historians and, and cultural anthropologists. And living with the group and observing that, that comes to mind, uh, like Jane Goodall living with the apes, right? So that's exactly, yeah. In fact, yeah, a lot of those methods were kind of inspired by. Um, so Jane Goodall does come out of it, and, um, and her advisors and the folks who were kind of encouraging in her and supporting her were inspired by a lot of methods of anthropology. Um, and so there is quite a bit of um, conceptual connection between primatologists and and cultural anthropologists in that yes, um, close behavior. Uh, close observations of behavior are, are critical here. Um, but most primatologists, unlike most cultural anthropologists, use an evolutionary framework. Um, they're using evolutionary theories to try and understand primate behavior. Um, and they're thinking about primates, again, as one mammal among a large group of mammals, among a large group of vertebrates, as one species of many on, on the planet. Um, that would be very, very unlike most cultural anthropologists. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it took longer to start taking an evolutionary approach to human behavior. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's even from, you know, Darwin um, was the first to lay out evolutionary theory, of course, and he was very interested in human behavior. Um, and so he, and actually, um, in his work, he does include observations of non-Western peoples um, in many of his arguments. So trying to understand human behavior from an evolutionary perspective is there from the beginning. Um, but it's also been quite controversial. Um, it really hasn't made too much inroads into much of cultural anthropology. There are very, you know, several important exceptions, of course. Um, but it has become the dominant framework in, in primatology. Um, and so those of us who are interested in human behavior from an evolutionary perspective, we're, we're still um, kind of struggling to, to make inroads. But I would say um, it's, it's less controversial today. I, I think we've succeeded in convincing many folks that we have something to offer, um, even though it, I can't really downplay there's still quite a bit of conflicting views to, to be sure. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the controversies with especially evolutionary psychology is that it seems like you can sort of craft a story with an evolutionary um, explanation whichever way you're finding it's going. So how do you actually test, test things? Because it seems like you could, have, you could have some phenomena with two opposite possible explanations and one anthropologist might say something and one might say the opposite. How do you, how do you test which is true when you can't look back in time? Yeah, well, this is of course uh, a problem with just about all science. We always have multiple theories for the same phenomena and how do we distinguish them? Um, and it's very hard, you're absolutely right. And um, evolutionary psychologists are proposing that a lot of the psychology that generates our behavior um, evolved over long periods of time during human evolution. And so it does require us to make claims about the past. Um, that's not so unusual. We were just talking about historians. 
Um, they're studying the past. They're making claims about past behavior. We just studied, we just talked about paleoanthropologists um, studying fossils. They're making claims about the past. Um, if we think about paleontologists thinking about dinosaurs um, or extinct species, they're making claims about the past. So really as scientists, all we can do is study the past. <laughs> we can't really study the future. We can't collect data from the future. We can only collect data from the past. Sometimes it's the recent past, sometimes it's the distant past. Um, and that's always a challenge. That's why science is challenging. So, um, but how can we make claims um, about past environments? Um, we have a lot of evidence about past environments. Um, we know that uh, for the past um, 2 million years or so, or even longer, uh, we know from fossil evidence, most species that we see today um, have been around in their current forms for several million years. Um, we're not living in the age of the dinosaurs, we're living in the age of the mammals. Um, mammals have been around a long time. Um, the plant life that we see today is not so different from the plant life we've seen in the past. The environments that we see today, the different kinds of biomes and ecologies are not radically different from those um, over the last several million years. They're, they're pretty darn similar. Um, there were always things like lakes and rivers um, and mountains and hills. Um, so the kind of geography that our ancestors would have interacted with is pretty similar to what we see today, the kinds of plant life and animal life that our ancestors would have interacted with are pretty similar to what we see today. Um, and there's always been parents and children. There's always been siblings. Um, there's always been males and females. Um, there's always been relatives and non-relatives and strangers. Um, so the kinds of social interactions that we see today are not, you know, dramatically mind-bending different from those that um, would have also been present in our evolutionary past. Um, and so we can really learn a lot about the past by learning about the present. Um, it's not a, a horrible assumption to make that what we see today does represent um, patterns that would have been true in the past as a first approximation. Now, that won't always be the case. Um, things are going to shift. Um, it's probably the case that in our evolutionary past, many more of us um, might have struggled to find food on a daily basis. We had to get our food ourselves. We didn't couldn't just go to Safeway and and you know easily get all of the food that we needed. We had to go gather it and hunt it. Um, the kinds of threats that um, we see in our past um, might have been different. You know, we probably would have suffered more from snake bites and spider bites than we do today. Um, so there, there would have been differences uh, to be sure, um, but these are not intractable. They're not impossible to get at. And then what evolutionary psychologists wanna do is say, okay, let's say we had a threat like spiders and snakes. Um, should that reflect itself in modern day psychology? And we can begin to see, is there, do we have some kind of intrinsic ability to become afraid to learn fears of dangerous animals like toxic uh, poisonous spiders and snakes and scorpions. Um, and we can test that. And is that universal? Do we see that in all humans? And we can even test it in our close relatives, primates. Do we see those kinds of fears easily being learned in our close primate relatives? So we can begin to look for universal patterns, things that um, would have shaped our psychology should be universal. We shouldn't just see them in this population and not that population. We should probably see them in all populations. Um, and they should reflect really reasonable kinds of threats, for example, to our ancestors. 
Um, and then we can test, are those things kinds of threats to primates that live in the wild today? Are they threats to other animals that live in the wild today? And we can look at physiological um, adaptations. We have all kinds of proteins and enzymes that detoxify venoms and toxins. Um, why would we have those if that wasn't a selection pressure in the past? So there's all kinds of ways we can get it. Is it hard? Yes. Is it impossible? No. Uh -huh. That's very cool. And there's also a lot of comparison to modern hunter-gatherer tribes, right? Yeah. So that's another source of evidence from cultural anthropologists um, and behavioral ecologists and folks who study uh, different cultures from an evolutionary perspective. Um, a lot of folks have spent um, their entire careers studying um, the life ways of modern hunter-gatherers because we know that our ancestors had to live by finding and hunting wild foods. So let's see how folks do that today. We can probably learn a lot about um, ancestral life ways by studying the life ways of, of modern hunter-gatherers. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to your PhD as you were making the transition from cultural to biological anthropology. Um, what did you decide to study? Um, well, I was always studied, uh, excuse me, I was always interested in mental health. Um, and this is actually kind of what got me into anthropology. To begin with, I was pretty skeptical um, of the biomedical approach to mental health that became popular in the 1980s. Um, it's all chemical imbalances and we can just pop a pill and that will fix everything. Um, because what I saw is that folks who were struggling with depression were struggling with real serious life problems. Um, it wasn't just like you woke up one day and you're depressed out of the blue. They had serious conflicts with parents, with mates, with spouses, with siblings, with colleagues. Um, so I felt that the relationship between very common mental health issues like depression really had to be related to the sorts of struggles that folks were seeing, seeing in their daily life. And I thought to understand that, we really need to take a pan-human approach. We need to think about our evolution. Um, and what kinds of things might have um, shaped the processes that end up with folks getting depressed over X, Y, and Z. So I was interested in, in mental health, but I really wanted to take um, a scientific and pan-human. I didn't wanna just look at um, undergrads in the United States. I really thought we need to understand this very broadly. So, um, as I was thinking about how to do this, it became clear to me that I really wanted, I thought evolutionary theory would be um, the best framework to uh, tackle this issue. And the folks who were doing that um, actually coincidentally were um, a group of anthropologists at UC Santa Barbara, where I was getting my PhD, um, that were some of the pioneers in applying um, evolutionary theory to human psychology and human behavior. Uh -huh. So I've heard about sort of, I guess this might be more pop psych, but evolutionary theory is saying something like part of the reason that depression rates are skyrocketing is because our lives are so easy now. So we're, we're not, we're not facing the same struggles that we were sort of built for, I guess. Do you think there's any merit to that? Um, yeah, that's called the mismatch hypothesis. And actually there's not much evidence that depression rates are skyrocketing. They've been pretty flat for um, as long as we've been measuring them at the population level. Um, so you always hear, you know, depression rates are going up or down, but um, really if we look back over the last 
um, couple decades. Um, they really haven't been changing much. That's really so, good to know. Why do you think people think that it's going up? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know why, uh, you know, there's, again, we scientists are like everybody else and we want to make our research important. So um, part of the reason that folks for a while thought that depression rates were really skyrocketing. And I think this this sort of misimpression still has lasted, even though more recent research has more or less disproved it. But there was a new method to, we really started doing these large, I mean, doing large population surveys of mental health is relatively recent. We, we really only started doing this um, kind of in, since the 1980s in the last you know, couple decades. Um, and as part of that, folks would say, um, you know, they would ask all kinds of questions. Are you, you know, depressed today? But then they would ask retrospectively, have you ever been depressed in your life uh, to get lifetime? So if you're talking to a 20-year-old, you might say, have you ever been, you know, depressed previously in your life? And they might say yes or no. Um, and then you might ask a 60-year-old the same question. And what they found is they were getting the same rate of past depressions in the 20-year-olds as the six-year-olds. Well, that would then lead you to conclude if at 20, you have this risk, uh, the same risk as a 60-year-old today of having been depressed in the past, you would erroneously include, conclude that um, depression rates must be skyrocketing if a 20-year-old um, has had the same rate of past depression as somebody who's lived three times long. Um, so that method, um, led a lot of folks to, to conclude that depression rates must be really, really skyrocketing if 20 year olds um, are really having as much past depression as 60 year olds. Um, but we now strongly suspect that pattern is really due to um, biases and recall, um, that it's really not the case that a 20 year old has, has the same number of past depressions as a 60 year old. Um, and so when more when better methods were implemented, folks realized no, um, that inference is, is really much, is probably due to recall bias and not an actual increase in depression rates. Nonetheless, um, that finding really kind of captured the popular imagination. Um, you know, it's probably good at getting grants to uh, fund your research, to claim that there's this big giant crisis. So it, it is true that depression is very, very common, um, but it's been common for a long time. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So did you know that, that when you, when you decided to go and study mental health, because I, I could imagine that if you were growing up hearing that it's a crisis, that could be more motivating than if you hear, you know, actually it's been, it's been pretty stable. Yeah. And that actually wasn't a factor. Um, that was something I, I uh, kind of learned later. Um, for me, it was really the theoretical approach. Should we really think um, of depression as a chemical imbalance, um, as a dysfunction of the brain, that your brain is, is dysfunctioning. And that really did not make intuitive sense to me when I saw that in the case of depression, um, that these really um, severe psychological pain that people were going through was related to real life struggles. Um, it wasn't just that their brain chemistry was screwing up. Um, they were dealing with really, really tough problems. And so what I wanted to understand is, can we understand um, depression in relationship to genuine adversity? And what would be a, a solid evolutionary hypothesis for the relationship between psychological pain um, and genuine severe adversity? 
Um, and so for me, the chemical imbalance story that was really pushing Prozac um, and other you know, simple chemical approaches to treating depression um, really did not make much sense and I didn't buy it. Um, but I thought, what, what is the right? If that's wrong, and is it wrong, um, what's the right hypothesis? And I think there's quite a bit of agreement now that the chemical imbalance story is wrong. Um, we really don't know. So, um, there's now quite a bit of research that antidepressants, um, they work really well, but um, placebos also work really well. And so the, the problem with antidepressants is not that they don't work well, they really do, but they don't work very much better uh, than placebos, if at all. That's interesting. Um, so the placebo might be like, you're getting help and that's all you need to feel like you're getting help. I think that's kind of my hypothesis that um, if you get the placebo, you now are getting, and that's kind of our general approach, uh, or my colleagues and I to depression is that it is a cry for help. Um, and so once you get the help, that is going to make you feel better. Um, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not a quick fix. It's not an easy fix. Um, you're dealing with genuine adversity and it's not easy to, to um, diminish that diversity. Those, that diversity is there for real reasons. Um, and it's, it's tough to, to um, get folks out of it in many, many cases. Um, mm -hmm. So how about this mismatch hypothesis we talked oh, yeah. about? Yeah, so the mismatch hypothesis I think is um, a solid hypothesis. Our, our environment is different than um, that of our ancestors. We live in huge cities. We're often separated from our close family. Um, and so during our evolutionary history, it's been pretty rare that um, you wouldn't have been surrounded. So if you go, if I go into my classroom today and I ask um, folks to raise their hand, how many have a, a relative in the classroom here, almost nobody will raise their hand. If anybody, it's really rare to get anybody to raise their hand for that question. Um, but if we went back um, a few thousand years or a few tens or hundreds of thousands of years asking the same question, everybody would raise their hand. Everybody was living with, with close kin. Um, and we have good evolutionary reasons to believe that our relationships with close kin are gonna be qualitatively different than our relationships with folks we um, are not related to. So that would be a huge difference that could easily play into our experience of adversity or not. Um, if you have a lot of people that are related to you, um, they may well be motivated to help you in a way that strangers are not. Um, and so, um, in fact, some of the early studies of how do other people respond to depression? So if you're depressed, how do other people respond to that? Well, some of the in fact, one of the most influential studies of that was with in college students and their roommates. And so if a college student um, is depressed, um, the roommates kind of try and help, but they get fed up pretty quickly and they um, find it aversive. Of course, your college roommate might have known you for a few weeks or a few months at most. Um, they're not really invested in your life. Um, and so that cry for help, if we're right, that, that a lot of depression is, is a cry for help, um, is gonna fall on deaf ears for people who really aren't connected to you in some way. But if you're living with close kin, um, that cry for help might receive a very different kind of reception. And our story is more complicated than that, but that, mm -hmm. that is an example of a mismatch where we might be in environments where our cries for help um, go unheeded because um, they're falling on deaf ears, essentially. That's a hypothesis. We don't necessarily have evidence for or against that, but, but that would be the kind of ways that 
um, mismatched environments, evolutionarily novel environments, uh, could play into a lot of mental health struggles that, that folks are dealing with. And of course, during the pandemic, we're all social distancing and isolating. Um, and that, you know, I've been very lucky during the pandemic because I'm married, I've got my kids, they're young kids that are at home. Uh, my mother-in-law lives right down the street. So my social environment hasn't really changed. In fact, it's improved in some ways. I get to hang out with my kids a lot more than I uh, mm-hmm. normally did. Um, other true. folks, um, like my own grad students, um, they're in a college town. They're living by themselves in their apartment. Um, they don't have family around. And so their experience of the pandemic has been dramatically different. That's basically day after day of, of social isolation and just connecting with folks on Zoom. Um, and it's been pretty hard for them. Right. So this family investment, is is it is it like a biological thing or does it just have to do with you're raised with these people and you know them so much longer than you know your roommate and that's why the investment comes in? I guess you'd answer that by comparing adopted uh, families with adopted children with biological children. Yeah. And that's a very good study design that you just proposed. There. Uh, in fact, if you just interviewed Deborah Lieberman, that's her whole, one of her whole areas of research is how do we recognize our kin? Um, and a lot of um, Deborah's research has been to what extent does growing up with somebody tell you that they're your kin? Um, and it really influences a lot of our behaviors. Um, and yes, so it's, it's a combination of the two that there are solid biological reasons to um, invest more heavily in kin because we share genes from a recent common ancestor. And so evolutionary theory is that the kinds of um, genetic variants that are gonna be positively selected are those that increase the survive, you know, the reproduction of that genetic variant, standard natural selection story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I've got a genetic variant, my sister's got it too, probably with 50% chance and uh, my parents have it and my kids have it. Um, and so the evolutionary theory called uh, kin selection um, is that um, genetic variants um, often can increase their own reproduction by um, causing the folks that have them to invest in close relatives like siblings and offspring. Um, I remember this quote by some evolutionary biologist and he said, I'd gladly sacrifice my life for two brothers or eight cousins. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so that's Haldane and that's a very famous quote and that's exactly the right logic. So we do think there's a strong biology of kin altruism or kin selection um, that gives us intrinsic motivations to help kin um, that might not exist for strangers. But if in an evolutionarily novel environment, we grew up, so you know, if for some reason my parents adopted my sister but never told me, um, I would never know that and I would think she's my biological sister. And that would trigger all of my psychology of kin investment um, exactly as if she was my genuine biological sibling. And she is my genuine biological sibling, but just to, to illustrate. And there have been some interesting studies of that where um, kids who were intended to be married um, as adults were raised together as kids. Um, and there's quite a bit of evidence that that uh, causes a lot of problems because the last person you want to have sex with is your 
sibling. Um, and so if you grow up with that person, you're raised with them since childhood, you're going to really view them as uh, a more of a, a sibling or close genetic relative rather than a potential mate. Um, so there is some evidence from exactly the kind of study design that you propose that that actually does happen. Yeah, that makes sense. So how did you switch your focus from um, mental health to evolutionary medicine? Well, of course, mental health is a, <clears throat> one of the big branches of medicine. In fact, um, talking about mismatches um, and then putting, you know, leaving the pandemic aside, we've really made a lot of progress. And I mean, we see this in the pandemic too, in treating infectious uh, diseases and reducing infectious diseases. So if you went back even just a hundred years or so, um, there'd be a 50-50 chance that you would die from an infectious disease. Today, um, again, pandemic aside, uh, most folks in, in high-income countries will not die of an infectious disease. You will not die in childhood. So in the past, at least 50% of kids died in childhood. So most, you know, almost half of all humans that have ever lived um, didn't make it into adulthood due to infectious disease. Um, today, almost in, at least in high-income countries, in middle-income countries, almost everybody will do sanitation and vaccines and antibiotics. Um, and what that means is that mortality and uh, morbidity are not coming as much from infectious disease as they used to, but instead from cancer and heart disease and mental health conditions. So mm -hmm. today, <clears throat> mental health problems are some of the largest burden of uh, disease burden um, worldwide, but also especially in high-income countries where disease burden from infectious disease is, is much reduced. Um, so yeah, so mental health problems are medical problems. Um, and so I was always doing evolutionary medicine. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a switch. Uh -huh. Yeah, I was wondering the other day about the balance between like sanitation obviously saves lives and is hugely helpful, but if, it, if things are overly, overly sanitary, you're going to have a weaker immune system. Yeah, and that's a that's a there's a ton of research on that in evolutionary medicine, because we see a lot of the disease burden we see today is not from infectious diseases, but from autoimmune disorders, diabetes, um, <clears throat> obesity. A lot of folks think is related to um, immune problems, um, allergies, and so there's all these um, diseases that are chronic diseases that seem to be related to. Um, our immune system in the absence of pathogens. And that is one of the leading hypotheses that if we were living in an ancestral environment, almost all of us would have intestinal worms. Um, we would have all been hit with a, a large number of different kinds of infectious diseases. And um, we have very solid evidence that if you grow up uh, infected with intestinal worms, your immune systems are intrinsically different. You're, you're um, producing very, very high levels of immunoglobulin E, for example. So um, uh, I would have very, very low levels. Um, even if I got infected with worms, my, my IgE would jump up, but it would go back down. But if you take anybody from um, um, a population that um, where worm infections are endemic, even if they're not infected with worms, they're producing very high levels of IgE. So your immune system um, is really calibrated quite differently if you're living in um, an environment that more closely resembles our ancestral pathogen environment. Um, and that it's leaves stronger. a lot of folks, it's a lot stronger, um, exactly. Um, it's been activated. And um, a lot of folks think that, and this is called the hygiene hypothesis, 
um, that are hygienic um, environments that we live in, at least in, in high-income countries today, our immune systems are not being calibrated properly and they're overly sensitive. They're turning on um, when they shouldn't and causing all kinds of autoimmune disorders. And you know, there's a ton of research on that, um, exactly how that works. And if that is the right hypothesis, I would say um, we, we still don't know, but um, it's, it's one that has been um, very heavily researched and there's quite a bit of evidence for it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It's a very interesting line of research. So your work on substance use, did that relate to mental health? Were you looking at like evolutionary models for, I mean, I wouldn't say the first antidepressants, but that's kind of, that's kind of what I want to say. Yeah. So um, drug addiction, of course, is considered to be a mental health problem. So it's, it's solidly in the area of, of mental health research. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually got into this with a, a colleague of mine, Roger Sullivan, who we were uh, two of the very few folks looking at um, mental health conditions from an evolutionary perspective. I was focusing more on depression. Roger was focusing more on schizophrenia. Um, but what we both knew is that folks with mental health issues are very heavy drug users. Um, and that's particularly true with schizophrenics. Um, they use a lot of drugs. Um, and Roger's idea, um, and one of the ideas out there is that the reason for that is you're self-medicating your symptoms. Um, and so we began to think about how do we think about this heavy drug use uh, among schizophrenics and other folks struggling with mental health issues? Um, how do we understand this heavy drug use um, and the self-medication that seems to be going on? And Roger actually has some studies showing that the types of um, drugs that schizophrenics typically use um, uh, match their symptom profiles. So that is evidence in favor of this kind of self-medication hypothesis. Um, and again, we took an evolutionary approach and our big question was, uh, what are these drugs? Where are they coming from? And they're coming from plants. Um, almost all of the popular recreational drugs are from plants. And not only are they from plants, they are plant defensive chemicals nicotine, THC, cocaine, opium, caffeine. Um, these are all substances that are produced by plants to deter herbivores. Uh, they're plant toxins um, and they're deadly. Uh, when we think about uh, nicotine and tobacco, we think about these long-term health problems like lung cancer um, and heart disease that show up decades after decades and decades of smoking. Um, but when we think about well, what, what is nicotine? Well, it's, it's why is tobacco producing nicotine? Um, and there's actually enough nicotine in a, in a single leaf of a tobacco plant, a big bit a leaf of tobacco plant, to kill you. Um, nicotine is an extraordinarily deadly neurotoxin that can easily kill you in minutes. Um, and tobacco is producing that neurotoxin not uh, to support your smoking habit, uh, but to defend itself from insect herbivores and uh, deer and, um, and other animals that would wanna eat that nice, otherwise uh, tasty, large green leaf. Um, and so the, and so Roger and I thought we need to really think about drugs from that perspective. Um, these are plant defensive chemicals. Why would it be the case um, that all of us are not just mental health patients, um, are motivated to um, 
literally on a daily basis. Um, I just finished my cup of coffee, uh, as did literally millions and millions of people around the world. Um, a lot of folks wake up and they have a cigarette or a cup of tea, um, or uh, maybe they smoke a joint. Um, and we all do this uh, in some areas of the world, um, in Asia and the Pacific, folks would be um, consuming betel nut. Um, all of us almost on a daily basis are deliberately ingesting tiny quantities of extremely dangerous plant neurotoxins that if we consume them in large quantities would uh, kill us in minutes in many cases. Mm -hmm. So that was this challenge we were dealing with. How do we understand this? Let's, let's put away all of the kind of standard theories of drug use that are non-evolutionary and let's start with the origins of these drugs as plant defensive chemicals. And let's think about the fact that we have been eating plants uh, not just for decades or centuries, but really since almost you know, the beginning of time. Um, we have a very, very, very long and deep evolutionary history uh, with plants. And that means we've been exposed to these substances uh, forever. So we can't really easily think about our propensity to consume these substances as some kind of evolutionary novelty, which unfortunately was the mm -hmm. way that most folks had been thinking about drug use and still think about drug use today. So it seems like a huge paradox that these substances are toxic, but not only do we like them, they, they can be addictive in some cases. Yeah, and that is exactly what we call, you're, you're absolutely right, the paradox of um, recreational drug use. Why, or the paradox actually, is, uh, as we call it, paradox of drug reward. Why do we find these deadly toxins rewarding? And actually, initially, most of us don't. So the data are really overwhelmingly clear that um, there's almost no drug use among children. So roughly from zero to 10, there's no drug use. Uh, kids are not waking up and having um, a cup of black coffee. They're not lighting up a cigarette. They're not smoking a joint. Um, they're not taking a shot of vodka. <laughs> um, and then there's a universal, very rapid switch-like transition in adolescence where we go from consuming no drugs to deliberately consuming almost on a daily basis some kind of neurotoxic compound. Um, and we all undergo that transition uh, pretty much in adolescence. Um, and the, the substance might be alcohol, it might be nicotine, it might be caffeine, um, some combination of all those for some folks, uh, marijuana or for, and actually the, the harder drugs are, are, use of those is pretty rare, but of course, some folks do transition to cocaine use. And it's perplexing because as we just discussed, these things are deadly toxins. So why would we, and so it makes a, so the child behavior makes a lot of sense. Kids are avoiding these deadly toxins. Uh, and yeah, that's what we should all be doing. Um, and yet we all transition to consumption of, of small quantities of these deadly toxins on a daily basis. Why? It is very, very paradoxical. Um, and as you point out, it becomes um, addicting. Um, and I would just, I would kind of prefer to call it habitual. Um, yeah. You know, we're habitually using these things. And it's, it's not just true for a few of us, it's, it's true for all of us. Um, and so why is that? So this um, might be related. When I was a kid, I was much more sensitive to, to not liking bitter things as most kids are. And now like, so I wouldn't eat dark chocolate, for example. And now I prefer dark, dark chocolate to milk chocolate. And it seems like that's, that's a switch that happens uh, as towards adulthood, like you mentioned. Exactly, and you're absolutely right. This is a very similar switch that um, any of us who have 
been kids and can remember our childhood or our parents, and we're trying to get our own kids to eat their vegetables, uh, it's a struggle. Kids don't like green leafy vegetables, typically. Um, they don't like bitter foods. They don't like spices. Um, and so there's a lot of neophobia and pickiness, and it is related to bitterness and toxicity um, and much more directed at plant foods than uh, meat, for example, or sugary foods. Um, and so, and then yes, in adolescence, um, there is a switch as, as folks begin now to broaden their diets, um, become more open to spicier foods, um, as you say, dark chocolate. Uh, my kids really love, my young kids love the, the milk chocolate, but my wife and I much prefer, you know, the 70% or 80% um, chocolate that uh, has a lot less sugar and a lot more of the, the bitter um, cocoa in it. Um, so that is, again, a transition that happens in adolescence. So what's going on there? Um, that's the big question that we've been tackling. Right. So, so what have you found about this, this paradox of habitual use? So what we are, our hypothesis is, yes, we're deliberately consuming these toxins. And we don't just do it, um, many people may not think of this, but I think the, the example you just brought up is the, is the perfect one. Um, drugs like uh, tobacco and marijuana and coffee are very, very similar to spices, pepper, um, onions. These are all plant substances that are high in toxins. Um, and we avoid them in childhood. So why do we avoid them? Well, uh, and why so much in childhood? Well, in childhood, we're undergoing extremely rapid development, especially our brain. So why is, why is tobacco producing nicotine? Well, nicotine is a neurotoxin. It interferes with brain functions, with neural functions. Um, it attacks a specific neural receptor called the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Um, that receptor does many things in our body, but one of the most important things it does is it allows our brains to control our muscles. So when you move any muscle, um, your neurons are releasing a special neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, and that then stimulates your muscle. That's how your brain tells your muscles to move. Well, nicotine binds to that receptor. In fact, it was discovered. That's how that receptor was discovered and why it's called the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Um, and tobacco is producing nicotine because those receptors are widespread, not just in our bodies, but in the bodies of almost all animals. It's a very um, ancient neural receptor. And so nicotine interferes um, uh, with that signaling. Um, and if you can't tell your heart to beat or your lungs to breathe, you're in deep trouble. Um, so it's no surprise that, uh, that tobacco plants to protect themselves are producing that stuff. And that's why we think kids are avoiding all these bitter substances that their bodies and brains are developing rapidly. And for that development to occur properly, um, you have to avoid substances that interfere with neural signaling like nicotine, caffeine, THC, cocaine, um, ethanol. So we think kids are basically protecting the developments of their own brains and bodies um, by being averse to neurotoxic substances. So a big part of our story is not to explain why people are using these drugs, but to explain why some groups of individuals are avoiding these drugs. And kids are one of the big groups um, that really have a very strikingly effective avoidance of all these substances. Um, 
So then the question is, is if this is protective, why doesn't it stay throughout the lifespan? Yeah, why doesn't it stay? Um, and to some extent it does stay because we see uh, significantly lower drug use in women of reproductive age. Well, they're adults. Um, why are they not using drugs just like all other adults? Well, they do, but they use it less. And we think it's because uh, during their reproductive years, women can become pregnant. And so they're not protecting their own development, which is already largely complete, but the potential development of a fetus. Um, so we call this the fetal protection hypothesis. So a large part of our research is to understand and test the ideas that kids uh, and women of reproductive age are avoiding drugs um, to a greater or lesser extent um, to protect either their own development or the development of the developing offspring of fetus. Um, so that's one big area of, of our research. Now, the other question is why does everybody transition to use, uh, including men and women and adolescents, and then women kind of drop off from their 20s um, and 30s, and then they actually, once they're done with their childbearing years, um, drug use in women tends to go up a little bit. Um, once the risk to potential developing fetus is no longer there. So that is the big question. And the, and the idea is that, well, maybe plants are producing these substances to defend themselves from things that eat plants. And those are things like insects um, and other arthropods, uh, viruses, bacteria, worms. And so Roger and my idea was maybe we're using these toxins to defend ourselves against those same things because the same things that infect and eat plants infect and eat us. And so, as I mentioned earlier um, in the interview here, um, in the past, we were regularly infected with intestinal worms. Turns out plants are also infected with worms. Uh, root nematodes, not root nematodes, are a really major risk to a lot of plants. So plants are producing lots of toxins to kill worms. Um, and maybe those toxins that plants are producing to defend themselves against the things that eat plants would also protect us uh, against the things that eat us because broadly they're the same things. Um, and it turns out there's a lot of evidence, not just in humans, but other animals, that many, many other animals co-opt plant toxins to treat their own infections. So we can begin to think of plants not just as sources of food or sources of deadly toxins, but as sources of pharmaceuticals. Um, over human evolution, um, all of those plants out there were not only a supermarket, they were also a pharmacy. Uh -huh. um, and there's quite a bit of evidence um, in other animals that other animals, when they get sick, will deliberately ingest toxic plants to kill their own pathogens. And so the idea here is that toxic plant substances, be they spices in food, be they psychoactive drugs, or be they traditional medicines, which are also basically plant-based, um, the kinds of medicines that we would find in modern hunter-gatherers, for example. Um, these are all plant substances. They all contain high concentrations of plant toxins, and they may be killing our own pathogens. So the hypothesis that we're working on is that once we are, our brains are mostly developed and our brains are pretty much developed, fully developed. Um, there's a lot of development that goes on in adolescence, but by age around 10, your brain is almost adult size. Um, and so the uh, risk of disrupting brain development begins to decrease in adolescence, um, but you're now being exposed to lots of new pathogens. 
And so our hypothesis is that over human evolution, folks began to increase their consumption of plant pharmaceuticals, essentially. We're basically mm-hmm. self-medicating against the kinds of things that would have begun to infect us, worms, um, um, insect arthropods, a lot of diseases, of course, are transmitted by things like ticks and mites and mosquitoes. Um, and nicotine kills those things very, very effectively. So mm-hmm. we, our hypothesis that we're working on is that recreational drug use is actually a way of protecting ourselves against a whole variety of pathogens. That makes At a lot of sense. At least it would have in the, in the evolutionary past. That's super interesting. So it's kind of like chemotherapy where it's like, it's this deadly radiation, but it's deadlier for the cancer than for you. Exactly. Um, all medicines are, are dangerous. Um, and that's why we often in modern societies, we have laws that uh, we can't just go to the, to the pharmacy and get anything we want. Uh, we have to get most of our drugs in consultation with experts who then figure out, is this drug going to help you? Because those drugs are toxins and they can be very dangerous. Um, and what dose um, do you need to precisely do more harm to a pathogen than it will do to you. Um, and so um, that's exactly, um, but that challenge is not just a challenge of modern societies, that's been a, a challenge uh, for us since day one. And so what we're arguing is yes, that humans, we have our own mechanisms, um, our own psychological mechanisms to exactly um, regulate and titrate uh, small quantities of these toxins that will be more deadly to our pathogens um, than they will be to us. And it's important to, that's a, it's a very tricky problem because as I mentioned earlier, um, there's easily enough nicotine in a single large leaf of tobacco to kill you um, if you ate the whole thing at once. So what we have to do when we're smoking tobacco is just take in just enough to potentially kill some pathogens that we have, but not so much that we hurt ourselves. And when we study smokers, uh, what we see is that they're very, very good at keeping their blood levels of nicotine um, pretty tightly regulated. And so there's been very, uh, a lot of very interesting experiments where they'll take smokers and they will either give them cigarettes that have been, uh, where the nicotine content has been reduced or increased And in the cases where folks are traded for cigarettes with less nicotine, people then begin to smoke more and inhale more to increase their nicotine levels. Or if you give them cigarettes with higher levels of nicotine, they downregulate their uh, smoking so that they maintain a a relatively constant level of nicotine. And that level that they maintain is just below the level uh, at which you're gonna start to get violently ill. So it looks like we have very uh, highly tuned mechanisms to, to regulate nicotine intake right up to the level where we would almost be vomiting violently, but not quite. Um, so we're maximizing the, the toxicity level that we can tolerate, uh, at least our hypothesis, to kill pathogens um, that might've been affecting us um, over our evolutionary history. Yeah, is it, is it reasonable to suppose that once upon a time, we, we always hated the, the feeling that these drugs would give us, but then over evolutionary spans of time, we started like, getting a buzz or starting to enjoy the feeling like, like people describe precisely because it became adaptive for us? Yeah, um, and we think that the evolutionary history of this goes back even farther because we see in chimpanzees um, that they, they don't obviously smoke cigarettes, but they do ingest toxic plants. Um, they do seem to be interested in psychoactive 
substances um, in the same way that we are. And the challenges, of course, of being infected by a pathogen um, go way, way back in time. So we, we kind of view that similar kinds of behaviors and mechanisms probably have a pretty deep evolutionary history. But yes, um, and in fact, if you look at, you know, anybody who has um, ever smoked a cigarette probably remembers their, their first one and then you probably felt pretty sick. Um, that was certainly my first experience um, ever smoking um, a cigar. I was like, oh God, never want to do that again. But then of course you will do it again. So what we see is that people initially have a kind of a negative reaction to their first exposure to any of these drugs. That's understandable. They are deadly neurotoxins. Um, and you would think that would be the end of it. First, first bad experience. And that's of course our experience with food poisoning. If we get food poisoning at a restaurant, we're not going back to that place again. Um, but it's not the way we react to these drugs very interestingly. And that's part of our, our theory here is that, yeah, you're gonna have a kind of a negative sick reaction. That's your body defending itself against a toxin. But at the same time, we think your body's recognizing this could be a potential medicine as well. So yeah, you, you had too much to begin with, but this is now a candidate medicine that you might need in the future. So you should begin to locate sources of this. Um, you should begin to experiment how much of it can you tolerate, what are its effects? Um, does it actually uh, maybe help you feel better in certain situations? So we think there's gonna be kind of an experimental, a psychology of drug experimentation. Um, where folks are gonna be, um, once they enter adolescence, are gonna be paying attention to what are these sources of psychoactive substances in my environment? Um, which ones can I tolerate? How much of it can I tolerate? Um, how does it affect me? Um, and so there's gonna be a period during adolescence of drug experimentation where you're basically learning how to self-medicate safely with these substances. Is the biological mechanism, is it more like your body recognizes the substance and then thinks I can use this? Or is it more like you're recognizing an association between I just took this and now all of a sudden all the bad bacteria um, are, just are died? Bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't know. And that's a great question. Um, and both of those could be true because um, it has to be the case that um, you're looking for potential medicines, potential pharmaceuticals that you might need in the future. And so that's going to require a lot of sampling and kind of being aware of, of the psychological and physiological effects of these things. But you also wanna know, does it do anything? Does it work? Um, and that would be associating a feeling of illness um, then disappearing on the consumption of some of these substances. Hey, I was uh, feeling kind of sick yesterday or I had a lot of worms. Um, and now I take this stuff and suddenly um, my body's flushing out worms because that's actually what happens. In fact, farmers used to deworm their livestock with nicotine. Um, and they'd give a, a concentrate, they'd take a bunch of tobacco and kind of soak it in a bucket of water. Um, in fact, around the world um, in kind of rural uh, low-income countries today, that's still a common practice. Um, later, they would use things like nicotine sulfate um, feed it to their goats and cattle. Um, and then shortly thereafter, you know, the livestock poop out a whole big mass of worms. So you might just notice, hey, I just ate this plant. It kind of made me feel kind of buzzed. And now I'm pooping out all my worms. I'm going to try that again. Um, and in fact, um, with the hunter-gatherer populations that I've worked with, they have a plant they call Matunga. 
And I was actually kind of, they smoke a lot of tobacco and marijuana. Um, and so I was asking them, are there any um, traditional plants that you smoke? And they say, oh yeah, we smoke tundra. Um, and I smoked some and it was very much like smoking a cigarette. You got the same kind of slight buzz. So I asked them, is there anything else you do with Matunga? Oh yeah, we treat our worms with it. Um, and so they don't treat their worms by smoking Matunga, but they make a tea out of it. Um, when they think they have worms, they notice some eggs in their poop, or some worms, and then they drink this tea of Matunga, it's a local plant, um, and it causes the worms to um, get expelled. So yes, we think there would be these feedback mechanisms, probably both, what kinds of substances could be potential pharmaceuticals, um, and then which ones do we actually have evidence actually work against this specific kind of um, infection? Mm -hmm. um, at least those would be our hypotheses, but we've still got a long way to go to see if that's actually what's going on. But those yeah. are, that's, that's kind of where we're starting right now, yes. Do we have any idea how people discover these? Like e whether, it's, whether it's with drug use and especially when there's a lot of preparation involved or even things like cheese making or alcohol fermentation, all of it, it seems like so unlikely that, that those things would be discovered. I know it's it's really remarkable, and especially because you're right. It's it's not if it was just and in a lot of cases it's going to be as simple. This plant made me feel better against this, but in other cases it's a combination. Um, so just to give an example, in traditional Chinese medicine, um, they recommend um, or using um, areca seeds. Um, and pumpkin seeds to get rid of particular kinds of worms. Um, how did they figure out that combination? And there's actually now been um, controlled studies. Oh, is it true that areca seeds and pumpkin seeds? So they so in a controlled study, researchers took a um, areca seeds versus worms and pumpkin seeds versus worms and their combination versus worms. And it turned out the combination was better than either one alone. That there was a synergistic interaction between these two. Um, how the heck did they figure that out? Um, how long did that take? Um, and we don't really know. It's, it is a lot of times these concoctions are kind of elaborate, cooking this, mixing that. Um, how did folks figure out that complex combination actually did work against this specific problem? Um, it's a great question. We don't know the answer to that, but that is uh, one of the things we're very, very interested in. Yeah, it's very cool. All right, so if you have the time, the last thing I wanna ask you about is your work on leadership. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I've got time. Okay, great. So uh, yeah, how did, how did you get involved in studying that and what have you done and what have you found? Yeah, so um, many, many years ago, as a, as a grad student, um, I um, read this paper by, um, a geneticist, James Neal, he's actually considered one of the fathers of American genetics. Um, he was one of the first folks actually to go into Hiroshima after the atomic bombs to try and figure out how, excuse me, radiation um, was affecting folks. Um, and um, he wanted to understand, um, again, he was interested in the kinds of things we've been talking about here today, um, not just how do humans reproduce today, but what was the uh, structure of reproduction um, over human evolution? And so he was one of the first that recognized we really need to understudy um, the few folks surviving today that still live traditional lifestyles uh, by hunting and gathering or um, horticulture. 
So he started working with indigenous um, native South Americans um, and really recording who uh, is marrying who, who's having kids, um, how many kids is each woman producing, how many kids is each man producing. Um, and he discovered a really striking pattern that um, in these indigenous uh, Native American, Native South American Amazonian groups, um, relatively few men were producing most of the kids. So the distribution of reproduction across women was pretty even and consistent. But there were relatively few men who were fathering most of the children, and those men were leaders in the group. So there was the striking differential reproduction by leadership. And being a geneticist, he realized um, that is a really striking pattern. Why is it that men who are leaders are much more successful and much more um, at producing offspring, i.e. getting mates, than um, other men? And um, he began to think of what would be the evolutionary consequences of that. Um, and he realized that whatever traits would have allowed men to become leaders um, in these kinds of societies would have been traits that would have been under very strong positive natural selection because by ascending to a leadership position, um, you then were much more successful at um, getting wives and therefore having offspring. So he began to think, what is it about, what traits are being positively selected here? And he proposed that it's intelligence, that uh, men are choosing other men that they consider to be making good decisions, um, are smart, are capable, um, really exemplify the values of that particular community. Those are the ones that often rise to leadership positions. So he wasn't viewing these leaders as aggressive, um, dominant individuals. He was viewing them as, as a kind of respected um, decision makers and, and good hunters. Um, and they were the ones, so he was thinking that this might help explain the dramatic increase in human brain size over um, the last couple of million years, because Neil knew um, that if we go back in time about two million years, um, our brains are about the size of chimpanzee brains. So what was it that uh, caused this increase in brain size in humans and not other animals? And so Neil began thinking it has something to do with um, leadership and the kinds of qualities that everybody values, uh, both men and women value in leaders. Um, mm -hmm. And he didn't view it as, as the kind of intelligence that we might think of today, you know, high IQ. He kind of viewed it as the kinds of intelligence that would really have been useful um, in these kinds of communities over evolutionary time, getting food, solving political problems, um, keeping everybody safe. Mm -hmm. um, but then his idea was lost. People forgot about it. Um, but I always thought this is a really good idea uh, because I knew that he was right. And since now we now have a lot more evidence that Neil was right, that men who are high status and leaders in their communities do uh, have more wives than other men and do have more offspring than other men. So that was a very strongly supported empirical fact. Um, and Neil's logic I thought was very good that these men do have traits. Um, um, since I've worked in a lot of these communities myself, um, these men are often highly respected by everybody. They're respected by their male peers, they're respected by the women. Um, so I began to get interested in reviving Neil's idea here um, and beginning to think about how leadership 
uh, might play into the evolutionary story of humans. Um, and, he, and specifically the evolution of our very, very large brains. So the so, idea is it's like a runaway sexual selection towards- It's a little bit like, a, yes, it's kind of a, it's definitely a sexual selection argument, um, absolutely. Um, but it's a different kind of sexual selection argument than people have been considering. Um, so one of the common sexual selection arguments is women, um, you know, that um, it's a good genes argument that we're showing off our, our good genes with, um, you know, fancy stories and good jokes and using uh, fancy language. Um, so it's kind of a show-off hypothesis. Um, and Niels is, is a very different hypothesis um, that these leaders are providing genuine benefits to everybody in the community that everybody values. Um, but he didn't fully develop his theory. Um, so yes, it is a sexual selection theory. Um, and so my grad student, um, now a PhD himself, Zachary Garfield, um, began pouring through the ethnographic record to, is, was Neil Wright? He only observed a few Amazonian groups, um, but do these patterns really hold? And in fact, yes, they do. Um, being seen as intelligent and knowledgeable and having expertise is indeed a cross-cultural universally valued trait among leaders. Um, and yes, indeed, these folks are often uh, more likely to get wives uh, than their followers. Another question so, is, is that just a marker for overall fitness or is this some quality <laughs> that exists independently of, of like fitness? Yeah, and that is, the, that is a great question. So a lot of folks would say, well, yes, of course, these guys are physically healthy. Um, they're smart. That's good for them. Um, women are uh, attracted to that because it is a sign of genetic quality and fitness. Um, maybe these men can produce more resources. That's a, a, a story that's been out there for a long time. So they can provision mates. Um, and we think, you know, th those are solid hypotheses, absolutely. But we wondered, is there something about the, about the leadership role itself that is valuable? And the way we're thinking about this is that good decision-making is hard and that folks actually genuinely value people that can make decisions for the group that improve everybody's outcomes in the group um, and that this ability is very very highly valued so that it's not just an overall indicator of fitness but that the specific skill of good decision making um, is actually a highly valued trait and it's one that is valuable to the men in the group um, for following that guy, uh, we all kind of got to agree on on which you know on a on a decision here as a group. You know, are we going to go this way? Are we going to go that way? Are we going to go to war? Are we gonna not go to war? Um, are we going to hunt here or hunt there? Or move here this season or move there that season? Um, these are really really tough decisions. And so, folks who year after year, decade after decade, make good decisions. Um, ones that resulted in benefits for everybody. That's a very, very valuable thing. And it's valuable inside the family. Um, we raise kids in families um, and both men and women both are going to be very attracted to good decision makers, people who make decisions that result in good outcomes for not only them, but for your kids, for you, for other people in the group. So we think there may have been specific selection for good decision making by this process. Um, 
the sexual selection process. And so that's kind of our contribution to, to Neil's idea here is, is that good decision-making not only by, and we think it actually may have started in women because women um, have these cognitively immature offspring that can't make any decisions for themselves initially and only gradually acquire the ability to make all kinds of life decisions. So mothers are making decisions for their children from day one um, and that requires that they understand their children's needs um, and their children's later, their children's social relationships. And so, you know, day after day after day, mothering is incredibly cognitively demanding. And the kinds of cognitive skills that are involved are exactly leadership skills. You're making decisions for other people um, that will hopefully result in good outcomes. So we think selection on these kind of leadership skills actually may have initially began in women making decisions for a cognitively immature offspring, minute by minute, hour by hour, uh, day by day, and that mothers that make better decisions for offsprings obviously would do better reproductively. Um, and then those cognitive abilities um, then became the basis for leadership skills more general. So cool. So are these experiments um, based off of existing anthropological records or are you conducting your own new experiments and observations to test yeah these? both so zach zachary garfield is is the guy that's been doing all this and so he started by going through the existing ethnographic record um and so there are literally thousands of documents from all these different cultures around the world for um, the last couple hundred years um and so zach did a very um, extensive survey of existing ethnography to see um do we see these kinds of patterns? Um, is leadership associated with reputations for knowledge and expertise and intelligence? Yes, it is. Um, is it associated with um, getting mating benefits? Yes, it is. Um, but then Zach uh, went into the field with um, a group of folks in Southwest Ethiopia, the Chabu, who um, up until the 1970s were hunter-gatherers themselves. Um, now the transition to a horticultural lifestyle. Um, and he began under, you know, now here he can begin to collect his own data and looking again, who are the leaders in this, in this group? Um, what qualities do they have? Um, what um, kind of mating success do they have? Um, and he can look at men and women leaders um, often women leadership was ignored in the ethnography before or wasn't seen, um, so Zach could specifically look for that. Um, and he found that the kinds of traits that are valued in leaders are pretty similar in males and females both. Um, so yeah, he was able to do some of his own original research, so combining existing ethnography with, with new studies. Awesome. Ed, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. All right.